You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is Anthony Salamone. He is the founder and managing director of European Merchants, which is a Scottish political analysis firm based in Edinburgh. Um, Anthony has done a lot of interesting work, published a lot of interesting reports on European Merchants website. That's merchants.scot. If you want to check out some of his reports, wanted to get his perspective on Scottish independence and especially on the upcoming parliamentary elections in Scotland coming up in early May. Uh, We recorded this podcast on April the 1st. I believe elections in Scotland are due on May 6th, so you'll be getting this a couple weeks before Scottish elections, though I'm sure some things will have happened in the meantime. Just a note about how I decided to structure the podcast. I really wanted to start the first half of the podcast with this interesting idea of if Scotland is independent, what are some of the foreign policy questions an independent Scotland is going to look like? So the first half of this conversation is focused on that question, thinking through what an independent Scotland looks like, not from any sort of partisan or political view. Uh, we didn't express any preference one way or another. That's for the Scottish people to decide for themselves. But just trying to think out at a sort of theoretical level, what does Scottish foreign policy look like? Then in the second half of the podcast, we talk about whether that's even realistic or not and what some of the domestic political issues are going forward. Some of you have been emailing in comments about the podcast, and it's really helpful, even if it's just as simple as I liked this episode, or I didn't like this episode, or this one was too long. Uh, Any feedback you have on the podcast is read and most welcome. Uh, You can also email us at info at perchperspectives.com if you want to talk more about what Perch Perspective does, the political analysis that we provide our clients and investors so that they can make better sense of the world. Um, This is also the part of the podcast where I plug our new Latin America-themed newsletter called LATAMPolitik. If you go to latampolitik.com, you can sign up for the newsletter. It's being published in both English and in Spanish. Um, It's $5 a month, so for the price of a fancy coffee or pint of beer, um, you can get access to more Perch. Uh, If you haven't left a review of the podcast yet, either on Apple podcast or wherever you're listening to podcasts, please consider doing so. It is immensely helpful for us, and it's just a small fraction of your time. Um, So take care, cheers, and we'll see you out there. All right, Anthony, uh, it's a pleasure having you join us. This is one of my favorite topics that I don't get to talk to people about, especially here in the southern part of the United States, because there are not that many nerds about Scottish politics here. So thank you for taking some time to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, and you've you've done a lot of interesting work. I, I was reading, rereading through some of the stuff that you've been putting out um, about Scottish foreign policy and how Scotland should be thinking about its foreign policy going forward. So before we dive into the real meat of it, I just wanted to ask, how, how did you get interested in this stuff? Because, I mean, the listeners will ob- obviously know that you don't have a Scottish accent. So why? how did this cap- capture hold of your imagination? Well, I suppose I've been on this sort of uh, a journey, if you like. I mean, my first area of expertise and first interest is the European Union. Uh, and when I did my you know, bachelor's degree, it was in French and German and, and European Union studies, which is a very specific degree that we used to have at Edinburgh University. Uh, and I was always fascinated by how the EU worked in you know, an era of nation states and so on. Uh, and you know, as an extension of that, being here in Scotland and, and having moved here uh, you know, over a decade or so ago, 
uh, you know, obviously Scottish politics is is so fascinating in its own right, uh, mainly because of the independence debate, but of course there are all the other facets of what goes on in politics here too. And I suppose if you kind of merge those two together, you're thinking of, you know, there's such a, uh, uh, a, a sort of heated, if not vibrant debate on Scottish independence. And a key part of that is, you know, what Scotland's relationship with the European Union should be and what kind of foreign policy Scotland should have. I should say those are key issues. I don't think the debates associated with them are very good. And that's a lot of what the work I've been trying to do has been about, is trying to make those debates you know, more informed uh, and, uh, I dare say, more substantive. Yeah, and I commend you for doing so. You, you've added a depth to the conversation that is not normal, I think, out there in, in most media platforms, which is the whole reason I reached out to you and wanted to talk. Um, but that actually seems like a perfect place to begin, and we can get to some of the domestic politics later because it's, as you said, it's a lot of fun, um, or at least for the external observer. I don't know if it's fun for the folks on the ground. Um, but I want to start with that EU question because in a lot of what you've written about, you talk about, um, I think you referred to it as full Europe theory in one of your pieces, that the real sort of, um, I guess, coming to fruition of Scottish foreign policy would be joining the EU 100%, becoming the most EU of the EU member states, putting all of Scotland's cards on the European Union. I, I just want to play a little bit of devil's advocate there because, I mean, Scotland would be, what, uh, roughly 1% of the EU's population. It would be roughly 1% of the EU's GDP. It's not going to be a place where Scotland is maybe going to have certainly not as much political or economic or cultural influence as it does inside the UK. So how do you respond to somebody who who thinks about the EU as sort of just trading one master for another from a Scottish perspective? Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first off is that um, just on the question of how much influence Scotland has within the UK, you know, I think a lot of people would dispute the idea that Scotland has a lot of influence. If you look at the way in which the Brexit process has been conducted, separate from the fact of whether or not you were in favour of Scotland staying in or the UK staying in or leaving the European Union, the way in which it was implemented showed a, a, a huge degree of, of uh, a lack of, of you know care for the devolved settlement, as we call it, so that's the powers that Scotland's had since 1999 in terms of setting up the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government uh, and all of that. So anyway, so there's that question. But if you come back to the, the principle of, you know, leaving the UK just to join the EU. Well, obviously, that gets you to what is the EU about? The EU is a, you know, is, is a, a, a grouping of, of states which are, yes, they share sovereignty, but they voluntarily decide to do so in order to try to, you know, tackle the, the major challenges which Europe faces and try to build a common future. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of people in Scotland uh, like, uh, have always wanted to be part of, which is one of the reasons why people in Scotland, by majority, voted to stay in the European Union. And if Scotland were to become independent, that would appeal to people here. I often get asked the question of, you know, we had the EU referendum back in 2016. Why are Scots pro-EU? Uh, why did Scotland vote to stay in the EU along with Northern Ireland as opposed to England and Wales? And I don't think the question is, why was Scotland pro-EU? The question is, why is England and Wales so Eurosceptic? Uh, and, you know, from my perspective, it's, you know, if, if you're going to go to the, the trouble of being independent and going through that and, and separating from the rest of the UK, you know, I, I think in your, considering how could Scotland be successful in the rest of Europe and the world, and those are two distinct things. Uh, to me, it, it only makes sense for Scotland to to be a full active member of the European Union. Now, on the question of size, sure, Scotland would be a smaller member state, uh, but that doesn't mean you can't be influential 
for your size and for your situation. You look at countries like Ireland or you know other, other countries like Finland or so on, you know, in their different ways, depending on the kind of strategy which those countries have, you can be influential in the EU uh, in terms of you know, whatever dimension you want to look at it, uh, the, how you engage within the council to, you know, at the moment, every member state has a European commissioner. There have been you know, calls to change that, but that's, that, that hasn't happened and that's not really on the agenda. Uh, through to you know working collaboratively in the European Parliament and so on, but the whole point of that, you know, the ex logical extension of that, is that you you have to go into it you know, understanding how the European Union works, you know, accepting the reality of of where you have challenges, where you see opportunities, and working with all of that creatively. Uh, and then, if Scotland were to do that, I'm very confident that Scotland could be a successful EU member state, but it would have to leave behind a lot of the sort of leftover mentalities from how the UK as a whole approached European integration, which is to say it was very transactional, very trade and economic fo focused, uh, and you know, frankly characterized by an extraordinary lack of understanding of how the European Union works. We see that to this very day, having gone through five years of Brexit. So Scotland wouldn't be able to keep all of that. Uh, we'd have to, to leave that behind and you know, uh, adopt how most of the other states in Europe see the EU. Yeah, although to, to be fair, sometimes the EU doesn't even know how the EU works because of how uh, <laughs> messy it's gotten. So those are two great yeah. points, and I want to break them both apart. I want to start with what you said about, um, you know, you, you you reframe that question very well. You know, why is England so Eurosceptic versus you know people asking why Scotland's pro-EU? But I think there are some decent geopolitical reasons and historical reasons for that. I mean, if we go back sort of before Scotland and England were part of one country, um, Scotland was basically the way that continental Europe balanced against a much stronger England. So Scotland had an interest in being independent from England. They looked towards Europe. That was why all that French influence was running around there. So there was that sort of natural fear, I think. So I think England is programmed to be Eurosceptic, and Scotland as the smaller power on, on the island of Great Britain um, is always looking for outside powers. And it seems to me also there's a little bit of a mismatch, um, a mismatch of strategic interests at the EU-Scotland level, because Scotland is going to be looking for that relationship that allows it to secure itself vis-a-vis -vis England or whoever else it's it's worried about. Um, whereas Europe, as you said, it's a constellation of states that came together for peace and security on the European continent. Um, but Scotland didn't really experience the wars of the European continent because it wasn't on the continent. Uh, everything the EU is driving about is making sure that Germany and France are part of one sort of continental unit so that they don't fight each other and destroy the whole continent by trying to assert dominance over the other. Um, so in that sense, I see why um, Scotland is pro-EU, and I see why even the EU in the future might look towards Scotland um, as a country that it wants to have a relationship with. Um, but don't you think there's a little bit of a difference between continental European countries that are a part of that geostrategic project and someone like Scotland, who, while close by and has all sorts of ties, um, is an island apart, is not actually involved with some of the main dynamics that affect the rise of that EU entity. Well, I agree with you on the point that Scotland is on the geographical periphery of the European Union, and obviously the geographical periphery of Europe, uh, and that would shape uh, how an independent Scotland would engage with the EU and also shapes it now. Sure, you know, Scotland is not, you know, sandwiched between a variety of other European countries with land borders like most of the European Union is. But, you know, uh, in terms of the rest of what you mentioned, you know, I don't think there's any concern here in Scotland about a relationship with England. You know, England, the UK would not be some sort of adversary if Scotland became independent. 
it would be a, a, very, a very important uh, neighbor and partner. And I think the you know the general view here is that you know the relationship between Scotland and UK should be as cordial and as close as as possible, particularly you know considering what the obligations of EU membership might require uh, and working with that. But also on the question of what is the European Union and what are the goals of the European Union? Of course, it was about post-war reconstruction of Europe and you know binding France and Germany together. But I think we have moved beyond that quite a lot now. You know, it's not about when we're talking about challenges to be faced. I think it's much more about uh, you know the ones which we are all very clear on, which is uh, sustainable uh, economy and growth, dealing with climate change. Uh, you know, building a, a Europe uh, which is fairer uh, and more just and more equal, you know, all those kinds of things. You know, of course, there are foreign policy, you know, as we would normally think of them in security dimensions. The EU is traditionally weaker on those areas and much you know, stronger in terms of the economic space or the regulatory space and so on. Uh, but, and of course, there are always these discussions about, you know, Europe as a block versus or with the United States or versus China and so on. And of course, all that is there. But in terms of, you know, most people within Europe and within the member states of the European Union, I think it's much more about, you know, working together on a practical level. And of course, there are the value dimensions as well of, you know, trying to say, you know, that the European project is something which uh, can speak to every member state. Of course, every member state had its different reasons for joining. If you go back to the Pays Fondateurs of France and Germany and the rest, yes, it was about the post-war reconstruction for the Eastern countries. It was about rejoining Europe. For Spain and Greece and Portugal, it was about moving on from dictatorship and so on and so on. Uh, and Scotland would have its own story of why it wanted to join the European Union. And of course, I think that would be essential. Again, that gets to the point of not what was the UK's story for joining the EU, was it? <laughs> you know, I think that's always difficult to say other than the economy wasn't doing so well at the time and we realized it would be convenient to be part of the single market as it was being developed when we go back to the European economic community. Uh, I don't think that would be a, a sufficient story for Scotland to sustain EU membership in the way which we see in other member states like Ireland, for instance, where support for EU membership you know, in opinion polls exceeds 80%. Uh, if you wanted to get to that kind of space, You'd need to have a, a, a reason and a story for why Scotland should be part of the EU. And it wouldn't look like the UK story if there is one. And it wouldn't be purely economically focused. Yeah, I mean, the UK story is, and it's part of the Scottish story. Um, and the Scottish story is part of the UK story at a certain point. They're inextricable. Um, but, you know, the the anecdote I always throw out is that Churchill was one of the first to think about what a united Europe should be. So even in the in the bastion of the of the Tory party where the nationalists and Boris Johnson all make their home today, you know, the person that they all look up to was somebody who saw very clearly um, that Britain needed to have a relationship with a united Europe and to prepare for the coming conflicts ahead or for the coming issues that were going to come ahead. Um, Europeans were probably probably stronger together than they were apart, but for a lot of different reasons and for a lot of the reasons that the EU, I would say, has punched below its weight and hasn't realized its full potential, um, it's been hard to get that going. And I, I think that also raises one of the questions about, because even, let's say everything goes perfectly, Scottish Scotland declares independence, uh, the, the UK government says, great, we give you our blessing, everything's great. Uh, you're still talking about 
I don't know, five years minimum, probably more like a decade just to get all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. And I'm not sure the EU today is going to be the EU of 10 years from now. Um, because as you said, there is this thing about values and the EU has grown beyond its initial project. But I think one of the things giving real impetus to the EU going forward is precisely what you alluded to, which is you have China on one side, you have Russia fooling around, you have Germany needing to open up new markets because they're not finding the growth that they need in the current markets that they have. You have France imagining that it's going to be a great power once again. So you sort of have this circling of the wagons, to use the US expression, of a stronger, more coherent European entity with a, a more coherent centralized defense policy, maybe even more you know, monetary powers. Um, th those are things, is that the sort of EU that Scotland wants to join? Does it change if, as the EU changes? Is, is it a blank check? How, how do you think about how the EU is evolving and where Scotland would be in 10 years from now when it was hypothetically joining? Well, you know, I, I could say that what, what I think, but I think it's worth me saying before I do that, that, you know, those kinds of questions I think are absolutely crucial, but they have zero role in our present debate. Mm -hmm. uh, no one talks about, you know, what are the strategic objectives of Scotland joining the European? How is the European Union evolving? And what do we think about that? And what are we going to contribute to that debate? And so on, so on. That, that our, our, our present political discourse is nowhere near those kinds of questions. And I think that's, Unfortunate because they're really important. Uh, secondly, just on how long it would take, you know, I, I wrote a, a, a large report on on joining the European Scotland joining the European. I think it would take about four to five years for Scotland to join the EU from the date it applied to the date it joined. So obviously, I suppose when you add in however long it would take for Scotland to become independent, and so on, then yeah, you're looking depending on when a referendum is, you're looking to Scotland perhaps becoming independent and then having rejoined the EU towards the end of this decade. Uh, I don't think most people appreciate here appreciate that either. You know, it's usually either one end of the scale is that either Scotland would join the EU, you know, remarkably quickly, or that somehow it would be impossible for Scotland to join the EU. Those are the kinds of extremes in which our political debate is situated. But in terms of how the EU is evolving, yeah, I think uh, you know the EU uh, al always faces there is always a crisis, at least one crisis, <laughs> if not more than one crisis. So that's not new. You know, obviously they're maybe they're bigger than they were before. Uh, and there are many internal challenges as well as external ones in terms of, you know, we talk about values, uh, in terms of value issues with certain member states uh, through to how the dynamics within the member states and then the council have changed when you take the UK out of the equation, which has been really interesting to see the extent to which the Nordic Baltic states plus Ireland sometimes and plus the Netherlands sometimes are tr trying to coalesce to advance interests, uh, whereas before some of them would have sort of, you know, uh, tagged along with the UK or hidden behind it when the UK blocked certain things they didn't want to see. Uh, you know, it was very easy for Germany to let the UK say no to France, whereas Germany finds it harder to say no to France on its own. So all those things are there. Uh, and where, where does Scotland fit into that and how would Scotland want us to see Europe? I think that, you know, Scotland would... I could imagine Scotland being somewhat like a Sweden in the sense that it would, you know, want to advocate those kinds of core values for the European Union, but still still be keen on sort of the, the free trade, you know, the single market is an important aspect. We don't want too much Europe where it's not absolutely necessary. We want to, you know, that, that's a very common Nordic refrain. We want to go back to basics. We want to get everything right that we're doing now before we add on new things. I, I can imagine Scotland being somewhere in there. 
but of course, Ireland's always a very interesting case, not least considering the close relationship between Ireland and Scotland. Uh, and, and Ireland, you know, has a very intriguing role of, you know, having recently become a net contributor to the European Union. Uh, you know, it has all these different attributes in the sense that it's a Western European state, Northern European state, but it also had bailouts so it can understand the plight of some of the sort of Southern and Eastern states. Uh, and it, it has not, it did not, it notably did not side with the so-called frugal four in the EU budget negotiations uh, and tried to strike a middle ground there. So anyway, so I could see Scotland trying to do that as well, uh, potentially of, you know, um, not falling into a stereotypical Northwestern richer than most sort of more uh, pro-market and, and sort of less integrationist member state. Uh, but I think it's kind of hard to tell because no one talks about those sorts of things. <laughs> In terms of, of, of the European Union it, it, itself, you know, uh, I'd like to say that the upcoming conference on the future of Europe would be a, a very important space where these kinds of core questions about the, which has, have always dogged the European Union, or at least for the last few decades, of what is the end point of European integration? What is the finalité? If, if we know what that is, you know, are we headed towards the more federal Europe? Are we agreed there? Well, not us, because we're not part of the EU anymore. But are, are, is the European Union agreed that, that that's where we should be going? You know, what level of political integration in the Eurozone makes sense? All these kinds of questions. But I'm not entirely convinced that the Conference on the Future of Europe will give us those kinds of answers. Uh, because, you know, the EU is very good at just sort of muddling through all the time. And, you know, you would have thought that by now people would, enough people in Brussels and national capitals would have realized that just, you know, kicking the can down the road in terms of, you know, defining very clearly what the EU's long-term aims are, what kind of integration we're going to have, you know, is there public support for all of that? And then how are we going to build that? You know, you can't just keep postponing those discussions and not just the discussions, but the answers to those questions and then doing them forever. Uh, but I think we're still in that phase. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's April 1st here. I think it was yesterday the European the European Commission slapped Poland on the wrist again for the, I can't even count the how manyth time that they've, they've told Poland they don't like what they're doing with the judiciary. Um, Hungary, another uh, country, obviously, that has run afoul um, of EU principles of democracy, all that sort of thing. Um, and I, I guess Scotland would be walking in as, as automatic critics of Poland and, and countries like Hungary in the values debate is, should I conclude that from how you're thinking about how Scotland would approach European values? I think that that would be the default sort of, uh, position that Scotland would adopt. But I imagine that in the initial ye years of being an EU member state, it might say those things more quietly because it would be trying to establish itself as a member and be getting along with all of the member states on some basic level, uh, you know, as a necessity. But mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Again, I, I don't, you know, it's hard to say, you know, with the sort of the, the entry strategy, if you like, for Scotland is in the EU. Certainly, while it's not a member state, it would need to ensure that it was on, you know, at least... Uh, you know, neutral terms with every member to ensure that its accession would actually happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a question of, you know, to what extent. So, for instance, obviously, Spain is a very emotive country here in Scotland with a lot of sympathy in the pro-independence movement here in Scotland with people in Catalonia. Uh, I imagine they would be disappointed when they see the Scottish government not talking about that with Spain. <laughs> Needless to say, not in the public forum, because obviously, if, if Scotland were seeking to join the EU, uh, it would need Spain to vote for that. 
would need Spain to vote for that and probably would need, well, I don't know if they would need the UK to sign off post-Brexit. That's kind of an interesting, well, no, I, 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 I guess I go back and forth. I can convince myself either way because Spain's not going to like the precedents being set. But on the other hand, I'm sure they wouldn't mind sticking to the UK at that point. So I guess I'd have to toss my hands up on that one. Well, I don't think that, you know, so this links us back to, you know, what people are talking about a lot in Scotland, which is what is the pathway for Scotland to become independent uh, and what, what is required for that. And again, I think there's a lot of realism lacking from that debate. But, you know, to sort of cut it short, uh, you know, every EU member state would need to ac accept however Scotland was becoming independent. You know, they agree with that. You know, again, I think that's kind of basic to an external audience. But here, you know, there's a lot, lack of appreciation of how international relations work in the sense that, you know, every member state would need to recognize Scotland and that every member state will look to what the UK government's response is to Scottish independence and base in large part their response on what the UK says. Anyway, but assuming that, you know, there's an agreed referendum that Scotland votes for independence and that the UK government is on board with that and on board with the negotiations for Scotland to become independent and that every EU member state accepts that and agrees with that, and then I presume that Scotland's accession process, you know, wouldn't be vetoed by any member state. I don't think so. Um, but in the sense that they were, wouldn't veto because they didn't want Scotland specifically because of the reason of secession and so on. But my point when I was saying about, you know, earlier about not talking about Catalonia and so on is that you never know what happens throughout an accession process. You know, obviously an issue can come up. Uh, so, you know, for instance, about Croatia, part of one of the reasons on the latter stages of its accession process why it was curtailed was its border issue with Slovenia, which was sort of resolved and then unresolved <laughs> after it joined the EU. So it was a pre so it was a, you know it was, there was a block on the Croatian accession going forward, you know, by the one country until it was sort of resolved. So you can you know who knows what would happen, but of course there could always be a situation where any single EU member state could say you know hang on we have a problem with a thing here. Uh, and that sort of you know puts the brakes on the accession process, and the way to avoid that is to maintain good relations with every member state throughout the process, which in turn means that you may not be raising issues with them about problems you have with them uh, if you want them to vote for for through every single aspect because every single aspect of the EU accession process in the council requires unanimity mm -hmm. um, so yeah um one more big picture sort of foreign policy question and sort of eu level question before we start diving down into some of the nitty gritty stuff at the at the uk scotland level and in scotland itself um you, you alluded to ireland and i'm glad you brought up ireland because um i feel like sort of two models for how scotland might behave in the future um you sort of have the ireland model or you have the new zealand model and ireland would be an all-in on the eu sort of strategy some of what you've sketched out here uh, new zealand would obviously be a much different model and new zealand is geographically isolated from everything else. So it has its own reasons for its strategy. But I raised that up because I wanted to raise the questions of um, if Scotland was independent, and we'll get to all, you know, I, I decided to begin this at the broad strategic level as if Scotland was independent. So we'll get to whether that's actually going to happen in the second half of the podcast. Listeners, don't, don't get your panties in a wad. Um, but I, I wanted to ask about, you know, if Scotland is independent, what is the future of NATO? Is Scotland going to be in NATO? What is Scotland's relationship to the Five Eyes, which is the intelligence sharing agreement with the UK, the US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada? I don't want to leave Canada out. Um, how how is Scotland going to position itself? Because and and this came up a little bit when you talked about how you um, Scotland wouldn't want the relationship with England necessarily to be adversarial; they'd want it to be cordial. Yeah. That's not completely in Scotland's control. 
Um, and when you have decision makers in other countries, they have to assume the worst case scenario, not the best case scenario. So even if it is cordial and even if, even if everything goes according to plan, they're going to be also sketching plans for, well, what happens if we can't trust Scotland? What happens if, as in World War II, we're not sure that we can, well, I, I should take that metaphor back a little bit. One of the reasons Ireland is not part of the Five Eyes is because the U.S. didn't trust Ireland in the context of World War II because they were worried what, what was going to be communicated to Ireland could get back to Germany. And there were good reasons to be concerned about that sort of thing. So where is Scotland in that future universe, even if it is in the EU? Does it have relationships there? Is it more broad or does it really go all in on the EU thing and it becomes more like an Ireland situation rather than New Zealand? Well, there's, there's a, a, a lot, lot to, to say in response to your sort of multitude of questions. Yeah, so, bring it on. You know, so, uh, right. So, um, first of all, in terms of the relationship between independent Scotland and the rest of the UK, you know, again, I would reverse the question a bit. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm very confident, you know, this is not just my personal opinions, obviously, in terms of my discussions with people, you know, policymakers and decision makers, decision shapers and so on across the, the independence movement and beyond that, you know, if Scotland were to vote for independence, independence that, that, you know, Scotland would be approaching that bilateral relationship in the spirit of amity and cooperation and so on, if the bilateral relationship were not as cordial as other people would want, it would not be because of Scotland. It would be because of the UK's approach or the rest of the UK's approach, which of course would be fairly obvious considering the way in which the UK government has behaved throughout the Brexit process and afterwards. This is, you know, I think even from an outside observer, you can see the way in which UK, the UK's international reputation has, you know, um, diminished significantly from having no clue of what the UK wanted from Brexit through to, you know, um, just just the, the, the degrees of, of, of um, animosity towards the EU throughout the negotiations through to all the calamities of not being able to pass things in the House of Commons, through to, you know, um, whatever, you know. Well, to, to, to breaking their word on the withdrawal agreement already multiple yes. times. <laughs> yeah, so all, all of that, uh, through to the, the UK government's recent review of foreign policy, which said they wants to, to have the potential to increase its nuclear arsenal, which is kind of going backwards from what we thought, certainly the European side was emphasizing. Anyway, so all of that. So my point is that if, if the Scotland bilateral relationship is not as nice as people would want to be, it would not be because of Scotland. I think that's an important thing to say. Mm -hmm. In terms of NATO, uh, you know, NATO is a challenging... So I think this, in my reading, there's, there's broad consensus, including among people who don't want Scotland to become independent. And obviously there are issues with the, with the, with the border and trade with, between Scotland and England and so on. You know, the, the, the pro-European consensus is, is fairly solid here. You know, what's less solid is a, a, a NATO consensus, if you like, which is to say that, you know, of course, there are definitely people within the independence movement who wouldn't want Scotland to join NATO. I think there's a majority within the independence movement still and a majority of the Scottish population which would support that. Uh, and, of course, that is the official position of the Scottish National Party, which is the largest pro-independence party and the largest party, full stop, in Scotland. But as I like to put it, you know, the, the sort of support for NATO is usually whispered at best, <laughs> you know, because it's it's the again it links to a challenging issue uh, for for the independent side, which is you know the future of the nuclear arsenal based uh, you know in the vicinity of Glasgow on the Clyde, the river, uh, and how is that extricated and uh, and what's the timetable for that and so on and so on. 
Uh, so anyway, so I think the, the, the conclusion would be that I imagine that an independent Scotland would join NATO and would be, you know, a normal active member on the order of a Norway or a Denmark. Uh, but there would be a desire to remove the you know, UK's base from Faslane and not to host nuclear weapons from the UK or, well, the US. Uh, or anyone else, I suppose, but you don't know, we really have a long list to choose from. Uh, so, uh, so there's that. In terms of the five eyes, I don't know if anyone has. I, I've thought about this. I really don't know how much other people have thought about it. Uh, I guess the question isn't sort of the desire for Scotland to have that kind of close intelligence sharing relationship with the rest of the UK, the United States, and the other partners. From my perspective, it's a question of what kind of capacity would Scotland have to be able to continue to be in that relationship? And what would Scotland be contributing to it? Uh, I'm not so sure what the answers to those questions are. And until they are, my sort of default presumption is that it doesn't really make sense for Scotland to, to, to be a, the sixth eye, as it were. Um, but I think that's a discussion that requires a lot more thought and 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 development before we can have any real concrete answers on, on those kinds of questions. But I suppose it links through to what kind of relationship Scotland would seek to have with the United States. And I imagine as I write in my foreign policy blueprint, I think that, you know, once again, Scotland would be echoing Ireland in the sense of trying to, you know, be a full member of the European Union, but also have a close and active relationship with the United States. And, and again, that's not about building something from nothing. It's about reframing how Americans think about Scotland, because, of course, the, the circumstances will have changed that Scotland will be independent, mm -hmm. as opposed to being fused with uh, the rest of the UK. And, of course, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some Americans are slightly geographically challenged. And so the distinctions between the United Kingdom and Britain and Great Britain and England and Scotland sometimes might be a bit fuzzy anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there, I think there are a lot of interest, there are a lot of roots you know, that Scotland could develop to, to sort of you know, cultivate uh, the Scottish diaspora and Scottish interested people in the United States. Uh, not to copy Ireland, that doesn't make sense. You know, Ireland is a different country. It's been independent for a lot longer. You know, obviously it has great links with diaspora and so on. Uh, you know, but to, to obviously look to what they're doing in some respects, and tailor it to uh, sort of a 21st century approach of, you know, if you're becoming independent in 2020, whatever, you know, how do you, where do you go from there? I guess one final thing I might say on that is, of course, is the question of to what extent should Scotland be doing some of these things, regardless of whether or not it becomes independent? Uh, you know, to what extent should Scotland be engaging in the world? And of course, there's, there's broad consensus within Scottish society that it makes sense for Scotland to have a global voice, even if it's still part of the UK. Uh, so to what extent should Scotland be engaging more with actors in the United States at federal, state, and local levels, uh, regardless of its constitutional future? I think that's an interesting question, too. Yeah, uh, you answered a difficult question very well, um, but I, it would be a major change um, just at, at the, on, on the security level for the United States. Um, not, not all those geographically challenged people who don't know where it is, who don't know where things are on the map, but at the security sharing level arrangement, that would be a, a big issue for the United States that it would have to think through. Um, let's, let's dive a little bit into some of the fun domestic politics stuff. Um, because I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's gotten much more interesting in the last couple of weeks too. It, it kind of seemed like, um, you know, Sturgeon was writing, um, the British government's ineptitude on, on COVID-19 and Brexit very, very well. And the polls were all looking great. And then boom, 
hello alex salmon hello alba party hello sort of everything thrown up in the air the polls starting to waver a little bit um obviously it's hard to put too too much stock in in polls but um you know the the scottish national party right around 50 percent uh, the latest FT poll I saw for independence was 45 for independence, 45 against, 10 undecided. So everything kind of narrowing right ahead of the photo finish coming up in May. Um, so I'll just throw that at you and sort of being there on the ground. How do things feel? I mean, is it that tight? Should we trust these polls at all? What What are you thinking right now? Well, I think that generally speaking, opinion polling for Scottish elections is is more reliable than it has been for other contests in other parts of the world. So, you know, we're in a strange situation where, uh, so we've got, I suppose this, maybe we could just take a step back a bit, that we've got uh, a, so we've got an election for the Scottish Parliament. Uh, it's a mixed system, so it's called the additional member system. So we have a combination of first-past-the-post constituencies or electoral districts plus regional lists. Uh, so you know you get both of those. So you have a, a regional. So each person going into vote will have two votes, as it were. They vote for their constituency representative, and they'll vote for a regional list party. Uh, so we're going into this election uh, knowing, oh, and we've got five. Ma- we we had or have five major parties: the outgoing Scottish Parliament, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, and the Scottish Greens. We're both pro-independence parties, and then we've got three pro-UK parties, the Scottish Labour, the Scottish Tories, and the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Uh, Anyway, so we're going into this election basically knowing that the Scottish National Party are going to win this election. The question is, by how much are they going to win this election, and whether or not they will have a majority? And then also who finishes second? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, the question is, will Scottish Labour... Uh, beat the Scottish Tories into second place, uh, which they used to they were in a re- reverse position before that. Uh, so uh, yeah, and you know, I guess that. So then, uh, then we have all these other issues about um, what the what that victory or the, the SNP will have, how large it is, or whether it's majority, what that means for a future independence referendum. You know, since the bar is set so high for the SNP that we know they're going to win, you know, that big emphasis is by how much will they win? Will they get that majority in their own right? Uh, it's, I, I think it's a bit apocryphal, but officially, the, well, unofficially, the, the reason why we have this mixed system besides ensuring a more equitable electoral outcome that reflects voters' preferences was to prevent a single party from getting a majority. That's what people say. Of course, back in the day, that was the Labour Party. Uh, and indeed, the initial coalition governments in Scotland were between the Scottish Labour Party and Scottish Liberal Democrats. Of course, the SNP broke that mould when they won a majority in 2011. Uh, so in a sense, uh, but they, they don't have one at the moment. They're a minority government governing in their own right, with occasional support from the Scottish Greens, <clears throat> especially on things like the budget or confidence votes in members of the government. Uh, so, you know, so all of that is there. And then into the mix comes, you know, Alex Salmond uh, launching his new party, the Alipa Party. Alipa means Scotland in Gaelic. Uh, I think he's had some trouble pronouncing that, along with other members of the party. Yeah, it's uh, a bit, <laughs> a bit intriguing. <laughs> anyway, so so all that is so all that is there. You know, I, I suppose politics is complicated anywhere, uh, but it, it does make you know all of it makes Scottish politics a little bit complicated because you know independence is 
is the the subtext for basically everything that happens in Scottish politics, even if it's about you know a school here or something about the health service, through to Brexit, through to whatever. It all comes down to divisions on independence. Uh, what we are seeing now is something different. You know, aside from all, and we can go go into it. You want aside of all the 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 background to why Alex Salmond is no longer in the SNP. Uh, and the investigations into uh, his conduct and the criminal charges which he faced, which he was acquitted on all of, uh, through to how he and Nicola Sturgeon uh, used to be close political allies and now they are bitter adversaries, all of that. What it boils down to at the moment is now we have three pro-independence parties who have a chance of winning seats. You know, we've got the SNP who are going to win, the Scottish Greens will clearly p- have seats, they may pick up seats on what they have at the moment. Uh, they were elected with six, they currently at the outgoing parliament have five. Uh, and now we've got the Alipa party, uh, which is another pro-independence party, which could pick up seats. But it's really hard to tell how well they'll do at this stage. You know, I don't even, don't even think there's been a single opinion poll published, including them as an option. Uh, I'm sure, but I'm sure that will come soon. And I guess, you know, the, the, the issue is, you know, if Alex Demond is re-elected to the Scottish Parliament, what role will he and his party seek to play, uh, particularly when it comes to independence? Yeah, no, there are no polls out. And um, obviously his party is so fresh that I didn't even know how to pronounce it. So I appreciate the correction on that. I'll have to, yeah. I'll have to get myself in shape there. Um, I, I was also, when I was doing research on uh, before this podcast, I didn't realize that he, he has a podcast with RT. Did you know this? What 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 is he doing with a podcast with RT? And this goes this this may sound like a trivial question, um, but this goes back to some of the questions I was mentioning about you know Scottish relationship both with the EU and especially with the United States. Uh, like wh- why is you know the the leader in some ways of or I, he's not the leader anymore, but that sort of first leader of Scottish independence and nationalism in the early two thousands. Wh- wh- why does he have a podcast on RT? I don't get it. Um, well, it's more than a podcast. It's a full-blown TV show. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, doesn't, it's not a good look, uh, needless to say. And of course, the SNP's response was to say, you know, we are not associated with this. Uh, our ministers will not be appearing on the show and so on. Though several members, former members now, because many of them have joined Alipa, who are either involved in producing the program or who appeared as regular guests, uh, were members of the SNP at the time. Uh, but so, no, it links to a... a a challenging feature of Scottish politics when it comes to Scotland's relationship with the United States that uh, there are, you know, elements that I don't think that there's nowhere near a majority of people who, you know, are are more receptive to a sort of, you know, I don't know if you call it a Jeremy Corbyn-style relationship with Russia, but one which is less anti-Russia, if not pro-Russia, uh, and I think that stems from, and this gets us deep into, you know, who constitutes uh, the independence movement and what, who are on the fringes of the independence movement. Uh, and, you know, there are people on the fringes of the independence movement who may, with Alipa, be moving closer to the center, who uh, deeply distrust the UK state, the British state, and all of its institutions, including the BBC. And for them, if they do not trust the British state, they do not trust its institutions, they do not trust its policies, then they, by default, are more receptive or do trust the things which the British state opposes. If the British state says, we do not trust the government of Russia, we do not trust their broadcasters because they spread propaganda, and you know, so on and so on, then by default, they do not believe that. In fact, they believe the opposite. 
this is a challenge, uh, not least because it's very embarrassing for the Scottish government to have uh, people who are articulating those kinds of views. I think it's one of the reasons that it's more difficult is because since I mentioned that you know NATO is, is a, such a is a sensitive issue, it's not mentioned as much. There isn't a lot of counterbalancing discourse from mainstream politicians to say, you know, hang on, this is rubbish. You know, the vast majority of us don't believe this. This is what we think. That doesn't happen a lot. So the people on the fringes you know, are kind of loud because they're not then you know they're not counterbalanced by the majority who uh, think that you know associating with RT or Russia generally, uh, is not what, you know, Scotland or Scottish politics or mainstream Scottish politics is supposed to be about or be like. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, but no, I suppose the difference with Alapa now is that the SNP as a party doesn't have that issue, you know, with all these defections from the SNP to Alapa, uh, you know, they're becoming constant that, that, Faction, those fringes or factions are becoming concentrated in a new party. The difference is, is, I suppose, is not that those people exist. The difference is that Alex Emmons has decided to front, mm -hmm. front it. Uh, but of course, I'm, he will have had you know, different motivations for, for doing so. And I imagine chief among them is a desire to return to frontline politics. Uh, and the new political party was, the, you know, in his view, uh, the best means of doing so. Yeah. Well, it's, it seems to me that there are three scenarios going forward. So I want to throw them at you and you tell me if I've missed any or which one of these you think is, mo is most likely. Uh, the simplest is just SNP wins an outright majority, uh, goes about its business, starts the wheels turning for an independence referendum. That, that, that's sort of the cleanest, easiest thing. Um, a second would be that the SNP doesn't win an outright majority, but when you add Sturgeon's votes and Salmon's, but when, when you put the, the SNP and the new party together, you get a majority uh, and maybe Salmon turns into like the Nigel Farage of Scotland or something like that. And as you get the Brexiteers uh, in Brexit, you get, you know, his crazy independence uh, folks on their side. I guess that's one scenario. And then sort of the worst case scenario from a Scottish independence perspective would be that the SNP doesn't win a majority. Um, so are th th those are sort of the three possibilities I see. D did I miss any? And w what possibility right now? I know it's we're, we're about a month out from elections. Do you think is most likely right now? I suppose the only other thing I would add is what role would the Scottish Greens potentially play? Uh, so I mean, first of all, it's very prophetic of you because, of course, there's a piece in the Times today uh, of quoting Nigel Farage, uh, congratulating Alex Edmund on creating the Alba Party, saying it was a very clever thing to do. Uh, and that he endorsed the move. Uh, so anyway, so yes, so so that that's there. But no, so yeah, so if we get you know, SNP majority outright, is obviously what the SNP wants. Of course, they wouldn't want they would they would want that. But then the next question is, you know, uh, the so an SNP majority versus in, a pro independence majority. We we have a pro independence majority already. There's one already now in the outgoing parliament between the SNP and Greens. Uh, there has been some talk of a SNP Green coalition. Uh, of course, that might be in the event the SNP don't get a majority, but it might be even if the SNP do get a majority, that they would have a sort of you know enhanced number majority, enhanced number you know a larger majority, a larger a larger pro independence governing majority with the Greens, uh, and uh, and I think that there is a zero desire on the part of Nicholas Sturgeon to work with Alex Salmond uh, in the Scottish Parliament on anything. Which gets to the point I was mentioning of how of what it would be like to have three pro-independence parties in the Scottish Parliament, which we have not had for some time. 
in the sense that you know we could have a pro-independence government with a part of the opposition also being pro-independence, but in a, a sort of distanced opposition. You know, the Greens were not in coalition with the SNP, but they supported them on almost everything that really mattered. They were sort of that wasn't a confidence and supply agreement because it was on a case by case basis, but it was you know it was confusing, but somewhere in there. Uh, and uh, so yeah, so what do I think is most likely? Well, it's hard to say with the caveats that we don't don't know at this stage, but I think it is it is certainly plausible that the SNP could win an outright majority. Um, because uh, you know they're polling well, and when it comes to the first past the post constituencies, and of course winning basically all of the constituencies would get you majority right there. Uh, we would expect the SNP to to win the vast majority of constituencies, and they would have their majority. Um, the, you know the the key point that's being debated ad nauseum in Scottish politics at the moment uh, is what is Salmon Salmon's strategy. Because, of course, he is not standing in the constituencies. Mm -hmm. He's only standing on the, the electoral regional lists. And so he is advocating what he is calling, it's the tagline everywhere for the party, the supermajority, the independent supermajority. So, you know, and then that's very interesting, right? So Alex Salmond is publicly saying, I've left the SNP, I've started my own party. But when you go in to vote, I, I want you to vote SNP for the constituency, and then I want you to vote for me on the list. Uh, and and then therefore we we will create the so-called supermajority for independence in the Scottish Parliament that will have a huge number of members of the Scottish Parliament who support independence. He claims up to ninety of the hundred and twenty-nine members, um, <clears throat> and so on. Uh, critics say that this is uh, uh, gaming the system uh, in a sense of you know artificially inflating the number of pro-independence MSPs in a way which does not match public opinion. Now, of course, people are entitled to vote for parties that, you know, follow the rules, register themselves, stand. We don't have to stand in the constituencies. You can just stand in the, on the regional list only. There's nothing wrong about that. Um, but uh, obviously, the SNP um, uh, are not exactly welcoming Salmon's endorsement uh, to vote for them, uh, and they want nothing to do with this. And they don't like this, you know, talk of the supermajority because they know it doesn't look good. Uh, and the last thing that they want is to be associated with that kind of rhetoric because they feel it might diminish uh, any victory that they, they do achieve. You know, because even you say the SNP win majority, but Salmond also wins a number of seats and he achieves his so-called supermajority. You know, will the SNP's victory actually be taken less seriously or somehow diminished by it? Uh, they'd rather just avoid that, but obviously uh, they may not be able to. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting strategy, and we have seen both in the Brexit conversation in U.S. elections in 2016, we have seen what um, a smaller faction on the fringe of, of, of a political spectrum can do to overall politics. So I, I see why Farage is looking at what Salmond is doing is clever because he's trying to move the conversation. And as you said, he, he absolutely is trying to game the system. I mean, he probably wants it to be good for him too, but he's absolutely trying to stack the deck. Um, and that would put Sturgeon in an interesting position because she would have to be the sort of the cooler head and the cooler heads don't always prevail when it gets into politics. Um, let's close on just the actual issue, which we've been dancing around this whole time, which is whether the Scottish people want independence in the first place. Um, the, you know, the Brexit leave or remain vote, I believe it was, I think it was 6238. Scotland wanted to remain in the EU. 
Um, but most polls right now that I've seen on Scottish independence basically put it as a toss-up, 50-50. Um, so if, if those polls are right, um, you have a, a much greater percentage of Scottish people wanted to remain in the European Union than actually want independence, maybe. And we can talk about how COVID or Brexit or all these other things has maybe increased um, desire for independence, whether the salmon sturgeon drama is decreasing desire for independence. I thought it was pretty interesting that the polls really started to shift pro-independence in Scotland after the pandemic. Um, you know, there was a spike after Brexit, but then they kind of went back down. It was really only beginning of 2020. Yeah, 2020. Um, can't believe it's already been a year and a half. Um, the beginning of 2020 when things started lifting off again. So, I mean, in some ways, the things that we're talking about are a moot point because if the Scottish people are not kind of fully um, invested in independence, none of the other things that we're talking about can really happen. And you know, even 50-50, that's not a great percentage. I don't know if Scotland's going to be able to do the things it needs to do to secure independence with that much ambivalence. So where do you stand on that right now and what the polls are telling you about the desire for independence separate from all the politics that we just talked about? Yeah, I think that it's clear that a public opinion on independence has, has changed, uh, particularly, as you mentioned in 2020, but particularly since June of, of 2020, from June of 2020 up until sort of January, February of 2021, there were at least 20 consecutive opinion polls, which showed independence ahead uh, in a way which we'd never seen. And then obviously it was very close. Uh, and there were, you could only say it was a majority if you took out undecided voters. Hmm. But nevertheless, that was substantially different from anything we had ever seen before in modern, modern Scottish politics. Um, and that's you know that that has since it, the polls have since narrowed on the, the question of independence, but nevertheless, that, that's a very interesting trend. Uh, of course, people wonder why that is the case. You mentioned some of the reasons why, and I think I agree with the premise that the most important reason for that shift is Brexit. Uh, and of course, you know we we have been waiting ever since the EU referendum to see would people who you know backed staying in the EU, but we're less certain about independence, shift to supporting independence because of Brexit. And we never really saw that bounce. Uh, I think that that has started to materialize as it became, after, first of all, after the UK formally left the European Union, after it became clear that uh, the UK's future relationship, which is now our present relationship with the EU, would be a very distant one, uh, even more distant than was promised by the Leave campaign during the EU referendum when they assured people that, of course, the UK would stay in the single market, uh, where that didn't happen at all. We have a minimal trade agreement, uh, which barely covers services uh, and which uh, does not include free movement, uh, it includes very little. Anyway, people realized that uh, and I, th I think, you know, contribute to a sense that if you have to choose between, and of course, many people didn't want to have to choose, but if, if you do, which you, you do in this case, choose between you know, the European Union or the United Kingdom Union, uh, more people are deciding to choose for the European Union. Then you add in uh, Nicola Sturgeon's communication and management uh, during the pandemic, as opposed to the UK government and Boris Johnson. I think a lot of uh, it's very clear that a lot of people support the way in which Nicola Sturgeon has has steered the Scottish government response in terms of her forthrightness and communication. Though I think it also has to be said that in terms of mortality and the rest, Scotland is you know comparable to the rest of the UK. It's not as if Scot the Scottish management of the pandemic has been that much better uh, in terms of the results. Uh, and then you add in Boris Johnson himself. 
him being elected prime minister or being chosen as prime minister and then eventually winning an election in his own right after governing without that mandate himself, uh, he is not popular uh, here amongst most people uh, on all levels, uh, from his policies, like the Brexit ones I just mentioned, through to his mannerisms and style. Uh, he is just not, he, as, as one of my colleagues wrote in the Financial Times, he's not the kind of Englishman to save the British Union. <laughs> uh, and I think that that's correct. Uh, he plays into a lot of the stereotypes of, uh, of the kind of, of Englishman that, that many Scots, regardless of views, just don't find as appealing or convincing as a politician. Uh, and so all those things um, contribute, in my view, have contributed to that, that sort of, you know, if not majority for independence, then growing support for independence. Now, that links to why would you push for an independence referendum as the SNP if, there, if you don't have a majority, if there isn't a clear, sustained majority for independence? Mm -hmm. uh, well, there, there are, again, to add the complexities in, there are, there are elements to that. One is that um, uh, Brexit has fundamentally changed the calculus in Scottish politics where you know, people realize this is a big change, a big shift from, from what we had in 2014. You know, if we hadn't had Brexit, I don't think we'd be having a debate right now about holding a new referendum, at least not a serious one anyway. Of course, there would always be elements of the independence movement that would want one tomorrow or today. In fact, some people do want that. In fact, some people don't even want to have a referendum. They just want to so-called dissolve the UK. Um, and uh, uh, they haven't yet cottoned on to the fact that, that that's not exactly a feasible route to actually becoming independent in a real way. Anyway, uh, so yes, yeah, so Brexit changed everything and sort of, you know, shook things up. So there's that. Second, as I suppose I've just already covered, um, Nicola Sturgeon is under substantial pressure from uh, people in her political party and also the wider independence movements. These are people who are in other political parties who are not in any political party who want uh, to see progress on independence, i.e. a new referendum or something like that. Uh, and so I think the SNP leadership, uh, you know, feel uh, the need to be seen to be moving in the direction of a new referendum. And of course, they've done a number of things over the past few months on that basis. Uh, for instance, they published before the election campaign started their draft bill uh, on holding an independence referendum. Now, originally, that bill was supposed to con include the specific date that they had in mind for the referendum. <clears throat> they ultimately decided not to do that because they realized, of course, that with the pandemic still ongoing, there's no way to effectively predict when a referendum could be held, not least to say that, you know, obviously it wouldn't entirely be a 100% smart move to put in a date if you couldn't actually guarantee that would happen, which of course they can't. So I'm sure it was a wise decision not to say uh, when the referendum should be. Um, of course, one of the main attack lines from the unionist side is to say, well, we shouldn't have a referendum during the pandemic. You know, we need whatever, you know, we need to focus on the pandemic, the recovery, and the SNP are pains to say, well, we're not proposing to have a referendum now. It's, um, but, but here, it's also where it gets a bit interesting. You know, on the one hand, sort of the quick line is when the pandemic is over. We don't really know the pandemic is going to be over. More specifically, though, and Sturgeon said this in the debate this week, and more recently, that it's when the, 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 the current health crisis is over, which I presume means sort of an acute, pay, acute phase of the pandemic, but in the recovery phase, it would be fine in their view to have a referendum. Of course, Nicola Sturgeon has specified that she wants to have the referendum in the first half of the parliamentary term, uh, which would put a referendum in 2022 or 2023. Um, and that's not counting the whole fact that, you know, what does the UK government think about that? Uh, and then what would the response be 
Well, that that is sort of the elephant in the room, and this can be our last question, which is, uh, let's say SNP wins a majority, or let's say um, you know Sturgeon wants to move forward with a referendum. Johnson has already said no, and he he hasn't shown any inclination to change his mind on that. So, what if Britain or what if the British government continues to just say, "Sorry, you 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 had your shot already, and we're not approving this." So you can either do this illegally, and we'll crack down accordingly, um, or or you can just go back to to doing whatever you were doing before, but we're not having another referendum. How how does Scotland or how do supporters of Scottish independence deal with that um, in any kind of meaningful way? I think it's the <clears throat> probably the single most challenging question to which there is not a clear answer <laughs> uh, in respect of Scottish independence. You know, um, so Boris Johnson has gone has, has had different kinds of responses and used different kinds of language. More recently, he has de-emphasized the we're not having another referendum, uh, not least because I'm sure his, his Scottish Conservative colleagues have said, you know, that will only increase support for independence. So instead, he's, he's said that a referendum is unnecessary, irrelevant, uh, you know, a waste of time, not what people want, basically saying we shouldn't have a referendum rather than, and it is avoided explicitly saying I will block one. Mm. So that's interesting. Uh, and that's there. And then in terms of, and we, we just don't know, you know, every, we've been saying, we've been having these same arguments and asking these same questions and, you know, all, all of it has been on hold until we have had the election, know what the result is, and then see what the SNP does or whatever the Scottish government is. And let's see what the UK government says in response. So even if Johnson at the moment says, you know, I don't want a referendum, so on, if the SNP do win the majority, uh, what will he really say? You know, I mean, we don't know that. You know, we know what he said before, but it's, it is it is possible. I don't know how likely it is, but it is possible he could say, right, you know, you won, you know, a majority. That's very important in, to the Westminster mentality. As I mentioned, you know, the Scottish Parliament is used to having coalition governments. That is not how London, you know, Westminster politics work, where a majority is very important and, you know, there's a very accepted, clear principle that if you've got majority, that you have the right to implement your manifesto. Mm. Uh, and if the SNP win a majority, as they did in 2011, uh, you know, that there should be a referendum. Then you could go into all sorts of questions about, uh, you know, um, where does power and sovereignty lie within the UK? Uh, what role does parliamentary sovereignty play at the UK level? Because, of course, that's the doctrine in the UK Parliament that Parliament is sovereign. That is not the accepted wisdom in Scotland. Uh, we, we believe in popular sovereignty, that the people are sovereign, not a parliament, and certainly not the UK parliament. Uh, so, you know, there's all of that. So you can, you can take a legal argument and say, legally, the United Kingdom is the state. If the United Kingdom government says there should be no referendum, that's that, end of story. You can also say, uh, Scotland is a constituent part of the United Kingdom, Scotland is democracy. The UK is a democracy. Scotland voluntarily joined the United Kingdom. If the people of Scotland say they want to have a referendum to decide whether or not they leave, as was clearly established in the press in 2014, who are the UK government to say no? Yeah. Well, that is, <laughs> I think that's the question. And we will see what happens after May, because I think what happens in May is going to do a lot towards answering that question. So, Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, maybe once once we get a little more clarity on all these things and what happens in the elections, maybe you'll agree to come back on and, and tell us what you think then. I'd be delighted to. All right. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.